Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, you've heard that a tree grows in Brooklyn. Well, so did a gay Jewish bullfighter who was friends with Ernest Hemingway. The Center for Jewish History brings his story alive. Apparently vomited after the bullfight, Mm -hmm. um, kind of horrified by the violence that he saw, but at the same time was deeply compelled by it. You know, he was like, God, he loved the adoration of the crowd around the bullfighter. He loved the performance of the bullfighter. Just the entire spectacle to him was just amazing. And then for Pride Month, centering the stories and contributions of Brooklyn's black and brown LGBTQ community. In The Sun Also Rises, Jake Barnes says, nobody ever lives their life all the way up except bullfighters. Hemingway might have been thinking of a particular bullfighter when he penned that line. His friend, the celebrated American matador, Sidney Franklin. Hemingway wrote of Franklin, he is a better, more scientific, more intelligent, and more finished matador than all but about six of the full matadors in Spain today. If anyone can claim to have lived life all the way up, it was Franklin. He was born Sidney Frumpkin in Brooklyn in 1903, the son of an Orthodox Jewish cop. Against his father's wishes, he took an interest in the arts, distanced himself from Judaism, had relationships with men throughout his life, and took up bullfighting. He left Brooklyn for Mexico and then Spain to pursue his passion, eventually becoming an accomplished matador. His story has recently resurfaced thanks to the Center for Jewish History in NYC, and we welcome their director of archive and library services, Rachel Miller. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So when my producer told me that there was a gay Jewish matador from Brooklyn, I was gobsmacked. Mm-hmm. Um, was was Sidney famous in his own time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so from about 23, 1923 until I would say the 40s, uh, he was pretty well known. Uh, so he was all throughout the local Brooklyn newspapers. He, there were pieces on him in the foreword, pieces on him in the Spanish uh, language media in Spain and in Mexico. Um, so he was certainly well known at that time. How did this nice Jewish boy from Park Slope find his way <laughs> to bullfighting? Um, he was a little too nice uh, for his father's taste, uh-huh. <laughs> and that's part of what led him to bullfighting. Um, so he was one of ten children. And uh, he was, he had the finest frame of any of those children. His other brothers were big, bulky, into sports, exactly what his father wanted. Sidney, however, was a little slight. He was sickly. He played no sports. Uh, He was instead, as you said, uh, into the performing arts and arts in general. His father had no patience for this whatsoever, and he called him a fancy and continually tried to beat it out of him essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we would look at today uh, as an abusive household, although I think, you know, it was uh, sort of uh, interpreted differently at that time. Sure. At the time, beating up gay people, especially if he was your son, totally fine. Yep. Yep. Especially as a cop. Right. So and I think about that piece, his father as this Brooklyn policeman um, who, you know, I I read a little bit of um, Hugh Ryan's uh, Queer in Brooklyn. Great book. Wonderful. Uh, And there's this particular passage in which he calls out a moment where policemen were policing uh, Prospect Park and some of the cruising spots there Mm -hmm. for gay men. Uh, And I can only imagine that his father himself was, you know, arresting, beating up those who were cruising in the park right nearby where he grew up. 
And so Sydney decided to make an escape. Yeah, there was essentially one final altercation between the two. Sydney spent uh, a weekend in Asbury Park with someone he called his business partner at the time. And there's a couple of different accounts around that. One uh, that he told to Lillian Ross of The New Yorker in a piece that she wrote on him in 1949, uh, that he was there with two chorus girls uh, and his partner. Mm -hmm. And then later in his own autobiography published in 1952, he mentions no chorus girls. So all throughout Sidney's life, it's very hard to tell fact from fiction. Um, He was a master fabricator, right? But so my understanding is that he was at least in Asbury Park with someone and came back home. His father was livid and beat the living daylights out of him. And he knocked him out. And when Sydney woke up, he was like, I'm done with this. Uh, I am leaving Brooklyn. I am leaving my family. I'm going to go to Mexico. Um, Why did he choose Mexico? Yeah, I've, I've been very curious about that. So my understanding, I've talked to some of his family members, uh, his niece in particular, Doris Ann, who said she thinks it had a lot to do with uh, affordability. He mm-hmm. felt like he could move his commercial art business that he had set up here as a young teenager to Mexico and make a decent living there. It was also about distance, getting as far away from his father as you know, possible for him at that time. And so he, you know, moved to Mexico City, loved it, loved the culture there, learned the language very quickly, uh, set up his business. And his business business involved poster making. And so he made posters for events, including bullfights. And then he attended his first bullfight. And he apparently vomited after the bullfight, kind of horrified by the violence that he saw, but at the same time was deeply compelled by it. You know, he was like, God, he loved the adoration of the crowd around the bullfighter. He loved the performance of the bullfighter. Um, Just the entire spectacle to him was just um, amazing. So... Then he was out at a cafe with some Mexican artist friends of his, and they were like, you know, an American could never be a bullfighter. You guys have no bravery. Like, oh, uh, I was thrown. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I will prove you wrong. And then he ended up trained by a very fam- uh, famous, rather, Mexican matador at the time, Rodolfo Gaona, uh, or Gaona, rather, I should say. Um, and uh, with, by 1923, he had his first appearance uh, in a bullring in Mexico City, and it was a great success. Um, people went there initially expecting, Ugh, what a novelty. Let's see this American bullfighter fail. Right. Was but he like the only American bullfighter? There had been one other one, maybe a decade before that, okay. who had but fought basically. in Mexico, but he's the only one who actually fought in Spain, is my understanding, uh-huh. during those times. Then, you know, his, his fame took off, um, and he realized, especially in that first fight and, and beyond, that, again, um, what that crowd brought him, that enthusiasm, um, the press coverage that he got, he loved the spotlight. He loved finding a place where he could perform his masculinity. Um, and I, I read it both as a way of masking who he was as a gay man and performing it at the same time. So it was... It was essentially a stage for him, right. an acceptable stage mm-hmm. uh, for the performance of masculinity. But at the same time, he's in this great finery. He's got his beautiful little slippers on. Yes, um, I actually was taken to a bullfight in Mexico <laughs> oh, recently. Oh, really? Yeah, and oh. I was so shocked at how queer it was. Uh-huh. And I was with queer friends, and we were like, this is bizarre because it yeah. is this performative sense of masculinity. Mm-hmm. But they're also kind of in drag, like this like yes. high femme sequined 
tight pants and you know there's this extension of their line and their bodies as they're you know twirling their pink capes around yes um and so it's funny to me that we associate it with this like sort of hyper masculinity Mm -hmm. um, of Hemingway and his Mm -hmm. cohort in Mm -hmm. particular um so he he achieved some success in Mexico and then he decided to go to Spain Mm -hmm. yeah so in Spain he appeared for the first time in 1929 in Seville Again, to great success. In fact, the crowd was carrying him out um, like royalty, apparently, as, as he tells it. But it's funny because even as he found this great outlet um, for his masculinity and also an interesting way of um, expressing his queer identity uh, in a permissible way, but also in a very invisible way at the time, um, his father was having none of it. The first time his mm-hmm. father saw any pictures of him in uh, Spanish language media, he couldn't read Spanish. He didn't. He didn't know what it was about. He just saw this picture of his son. Some in gay costume. shit, probably. <laughs> and he was like, what are you, at a costume ball? You know? <laughs> so he he never accepted this. Was Sidney, like, sending clippings home to his family? Yes. I mean, you also mentioned that, uh, you know, Brooklyn newspapers picked it up. So mm-hmm. his fame was international. Yeah. So initially he was sending Spanish-language uh, clippings home. And then later it appeared in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle and became a little bit more real and understandable to his family in English. Was anyone in his family supportive of him? Absolutely. His mother um, had his back at every moment um, and would, you know, if he was struggling for money, she'd slip him some secret money. Uh, His sisters, he had very close relationships with. So um, while he was back and forth, primarily between Mexico and Spain for a number of decades, he did come back to Brooklyn on a regular basis and he would stay with his mother and sisters. Did he have any um, successful romantic relationships? I, I know that there was, um, I believe it's from his autobiography, a passage that you mentioned in your presentation where he talks about how he has a mentor who's like, do you want to be a whoremonger or a matador? Mm-hmm. And Sydney's like, I want to be a matador. He's like, well, then you have to get rid of your beautiful girlfriend. <laughs> and Sydney's like, with great sadness, I sent her back home to the U.S. Yeah. Um, did did that episode ever happen? And do we know if he had other romantic relationships after that? So there's a number of friends of his who literally called his autobiography bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and his niece calculates that about 50% of his autobiography is fabricated mm-hmm. and fantastical. And she specifically, and one other niece also had confirmed this uh, a few years back, claimed that any of the female figures in that autobiography are fictitious, mm-hmm. made up. So I just see them as um, heterosexual markers, essentially. So beards. Sure. And what about successful relationships with men? That's also not clear. You know, there's um, there was a particular protege of his who he got to know in Brooklyn um, when his family was living uh, no longer on Jackson Place in Park Slope, but on East 29th Street between um, Avenue P and Kings Highway, who, you know, he was training to be a matador But there was more going on to it than that. Uh, And his niece uh, told me about times where they would stay over at the house. Uh, They would have two cots set up for them separately. And she'd wake up in the morning to see that they had pushed the two cots away from each other and instead had the bedclothes on the ground and had clearly been sleeping with each other. And what about the fact that he was Jewish? Was that at all looked down upon? Was there stigma around that in Spain or Mexico? My guess is it had to have been. I really, in in the research that I've done, um, which is limited really to his autobiography, to the materials in the collection at the American Jewish Historical Society, uh, and to his own autobiography, um, I haven't 
I haven't seen a lot around that, but it, it had to have been uh, a real presence. Was um, he out as Jewish? Um, he really, again, in, in his autobiography, for example, any passage, and there's not many of them, that are actually about Brooklyn and his family and his background, he doesn't seem to mention the fact that he's Jewish. So he seems a bit closeted in that book in terms of his Judaism. And, you know, certainly the Jewish press was calling him, you know, a wonderful Jewish toreador, um, uh, and, you know, very proudly claimed him. And I'm not sure of what his reactions to that were at the time. I know that he really focused on his American identity and his identity as a tough Brooklyn guy. Do we know, are there any other Jewish matadors or openly gay matadors? As far as I'm aware, he's the first American Jewish bullfighter. When he was in Spain, he befriended Hemingway. What do we know about that relationship? And actually, it was Hemingway who befriended him. So apparently, Sidney Franklin was sitting at a cafe. This schlubby guy walks up. (laughs) Smelling of booze at 11 in the morning, no doubt. (laughs) And Sidney goes to reach into his pocket to bring some change out. Because he's like, this guy looks like he needs some help. Oh, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) He, you know, he introduces himself. and It doesn't ring a bell for Sidney. He wasn't Uh a big reader. It took him a while to really absorb who Ernest Hemingway was. Right. Um, but he, they became very fast friends. Um, and so as they really hit it off as this pair of artistic macho guys. Um, and Sidney provided him with a lot of um, insider information into the bullfighting world that definitely helped Hemingway's writings. So Matador is a notoriously dangerous profession. Yes. Um, was Sidney ever injured? Multiple times. And so in 1930, he was gored in the rear end, actually. Um, And then after that, and that actually he was recovering for years uh, from that particular injury and had a number of surgeries uh, following up the initial one, also in the thigh. And then the final goring was in 1959. So, yeah, the Bulls definitely got him. And he had an interlude in Hollywood as well, right? Yeah, brief. So he advised on The Kid from Spain, which starred... With Eddie Cantor. Eddie Cantor, uh-huh. yes. Uh-huh. He advised on what the bull ring should look like, um, what type of bulls they should involve in the filming. Um, and he does have a small appearance in the film, too, as a bullfighter. Um, and Paulette Goddard was in that film as well, so he got to hobnob with her a little bit. There's talk of him maybe having been an extra with Douglas Fairbanks um, in The Black Prince in 1926 as well. So, yeah, a little bit of involvement in Hollywood. Do we think that ultimately he led a happy and fulfilling life? Like his, his beginnings are so tragic. Yeah. Um, how did he come to think of himself and the trajectory of his life? Well, at least in the way that he told it, right? It was triumphant, and he was larger than life, and uh, he had an incredibly full life, lived every moment to the max. I, I, I don't really know how the reality of it actually felt then. Uh, and in talking to the one living relative, his niece, she generally saw him always as a positive presence and uh, as a communication of, of what she could be, of what anyone could be um, if they put their minds to it. Um, what a good pride story. So, I hope yeah. he was happy. <laughs> I hope so, um, too. It sounds like you have a really cool job. How, I, how did you. <laughs> you come across his story? Is it something that happens all the time for you, discovering unsung <laughs> Jewish heroes? Uh, yeah, periodically. So as an archivist, uh, you know, we process a number of collections. I 
process means essentially to arrange and describe a collection. We'll get a collection in, and it's it can be in varying states of disarray. And when you say a collection, what is that? Papers? Yeah, original papers, documents? photographs. Um, at this point in time, it could be email accounts, uh, hard drives. But in the case of Sidney Franklin, it's a number of photographs, recordings, uh, vinyl records, uh, clippings, a film proposal that one of his nieces had pulled together about his life. So it really varies. Uh, in terms of collections that we get in. Um, and so Sydney's uh, is a case where uh, I, I have to say in the three and a half years when I was actually arranging and describing collections as a practicing archivist, his story was the most exciting that I came across. It's a very exciting story. Yeah, it's story. an outlier. He's yeah. an outlier. Yeah. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Thank you for your time. On the occasion of World Pride, the Brooklyn Borough President's Office is honoring several members of Brooklyn's LGBT community for their contributions. Joining us today to talk about LGBT and POC-owned businesses and the importance of safe nightlife spaces are two of the honorees. James Saunders is a longtime businessman and promoter. Welcome to Woman 2 BK. Oh, thank you. And Andre Springer, a.k.a. Shaquanda Coco Mulata, is a performer and entrepreneur. Welcome. Thank you. Um, tell me a little bit about the awards that you guys are receiving. We'll start with you, James. Oh, well, it was a surprise to me. So I just found out this just yesterday. So I'm just like, okay, I'm just trying to still absorb it. And you're getting the Vanguard Award. Yeah. What does that mean? Do you know? I guess for all the work I've done in the community over the years. I've been doing this 30, 35 plus years, you know, and I've been part of the LGBT people of color community, you know, and um, it's been, um, been a job. And Andre, Talk to me about the award that you're receiving and why you are being recognized. I guess it's like a visible as honoring uh, being a, a queer person of color with a business and providing visibility uh, on the shelves of food and supermarkets and markets across the state. So uh. that's right, because in addition to being a performer, you are also a small uh, business food entrepreneur. Yes. That's Tell correct. me a little bit about Shaquanda Hot Pepper Sauce. Yes. So that was uh, it was first uh, realized in 2015. Uh, Simon Lee asked me to perform at Bushwick, which at the time was held in Bushwick. And I told him, you know, let me get back to you on what exactly I'm going to do. And uh, with my friend that I met in college, Dominic Mondavi, uh, we've made like different, like fun posters, T-shirts and, you know, different kind of art related projects. And food has always been on the horizon for me because I've worked in restaurants as a waiter or a bartender. And uh, I returned Simon's call and I told him that I would do it if I was allowed to do it in people's mouths. So it was like a kind of kitschy joke, you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then that's how Shaquanda's Hot Sauce was uh, was born. And people really loved it. And, you know, I was like, oh, I should try this and see if this works. And it, be it became something more. And, you know, following the years, I realized that I was actually doing like a legit business. I was like, oh, snap. And it's a hot sauce that's an homage to your grandmother. Is that right? Yeah. Like, oh, it's an homage to my grandma. It's an homage to the women that I grew up with that I look up to. It's all of those things that kind of encapsulates my experience and my culinary experience in Brooklyn. 
And tell me about how you incorporate this hot sauce into your act when you're performing. Oh, so like I used to do the clubs, like uh, host parties with like Lady Fag and do things at the Chelsea Hotel and like Metropolitan in Brooklyn. I sort of moved away from the performance space of a nightclub and into the markets. So like farmers markets where it is sort of I'm activating spaces with a queer identity. And are you when you're at a farmers market, are you in drag? It depends. Like it really depends how hot the day is and (laughs) very practical. (laughs) (laughs) What the exposure is, like how I'm feeling with the environment, because I think being present in drag is just as important like being present as myself and like what I'm trying to get or what I'm trying to learn or who I'm trying to reach in that environment. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you used to perform at parties and queer nights. Mm -hmm. And um, I I think that we're probably of the same generation. I sort of Mm -hmm. came up in an era where it was, you know, motherfucker and lady fag and Mm -hmm. now poppy juice and Mm -hmm. bubble tea. And that is a real divergence from an earlier generation where there would be actual bars and clubs um, that were serving communities of color, gay communities of color. Do you feel like with the number of successful uh, parties that are currently catering to queer people of color, do you still feel that there's a need for dedicated bars and clubs? Yeah, of course. It anchors. It's an anchor. And, you know, I love traveling parties and I love the idea of like spaces being activated. But there is something to be said about having like a home base and like a place that you know you can go to. Place you can go there. on a Tuesday. Exactly. Yeah. So Calvin Clark is being honored as well. Um, and Calvin Clark um, is a, a club owner. Um, and most recently, his club Langston closed, I believe, this past winter. Yes, I'm aware of that. I'm one of his good, good close friends. Um, Langston's one of the few black owned, well, it's like the only black owned club at the time. There might be another one, I think, now. But it's that he was the only black club that's been around as long as he's been around for many, for at least over 10 years. And unfortunately, he had lack of community support in the communities there at um, Franklin and uh, Franklin and um, Atlantic Avenue. But um, he has had his challenges. And of course, he's, you know, when you have your challenge, the only black club there, there are always kind of reasons to find a way to get you out of there. Right. That's and what he, I find. He staged a protest where he mm-hmm. went on hunger strike. <clears throat> yeah, I was there too. And stood outside for 10 days in, yeah, in the winter, some, right? That was amazing. Yeah. So, I don't know who else would do that. But talk he to did me, it. Talk to me about was there, did the community come out to support this protest or do you feel like it largely fell on deaf ears? I think enough enough community to come and support it. I think the conversation wasn't wide enough that people understand what's the, what was the reason why, although he felt that he gave the reason why he has any challenges at this space. Um, unfortunately, the community didn't come in, in full force to come and support it. So New York City anointed a nightlife mayor last year. I'm curious about if you feel like it's lip service, uh, like we aren't paying enough attention to nightlife spaces, uh, specifically geared towards queer people of color, and if this nightlife mayor should be doing more to support those Well, it should be doing more, especially in Brooklyn, you know? I mean, does she come to Brooklyn? Does she support spaces in Brooklyn for people of color? I mean, I can I can't say what the what what she does for white clients for white bars or social spaces, but I don't think that I don't have heard anything about her coming doing anything in, in Brooklyn to do anything for people of color. And mm-hmm. to me, Brooklyn has the largest population of people in the city. We, what this is supposed to be the fourth largest city in America? If it was a city by itself, stand mm-hmm. alone. 
So what's up with Brooklyn? You know, without without Brooklyn, New York City wouldn't exist. Yep. You know, the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people will get to also. And I mean, they bring hotels in Brooklyn, so that's, that's that's a good start, I guess, for other things. But nightlife can happen for everybody, not just for a, a selective group of people. Or tourists. I think it's important, like, part of the city runs on the money that comes from tourism, but at the same time for the residents who live here and the people who've been here for a while or who have just happened to move here, I think it's important to foster a a sustainable nightlife experience for those people that are here, not just for the corporate machine. Andre, I want to ask you another question about your hot sauce. So you Mm -hmm. um, are wearing a T-shirt. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about your decision to brand your hot sauce with your drag character? do some people say to you, oh, like, why wouldn't you just create a branding that isn't so in your face that, you know, yeah. is more accessible <laughs> to all sorts of people, whether or not they. I say fuck that. <laughs> Talk to me more about that. Well, I think, you know, as a black person in this country, we're all, you know, we are always looked at through a, a very specific lens and that lens can be harmful and it's like also stops us from doing things and uh, claiming what is rightfully ours, what, uh, how we're able to express ourselves, like, and then, you know, how careful we have to be or tiptoe and on eggshells. And my little sister has a name with apostrophe in it. That's Tamisha. Hi, Tamisha. <laughs> you know, and you know, when I see or think of like something that I'm creating that's authentically me, I have to authentically present it as such. And so, which is, you know, my drag name, and I, it always was going to be a drag sauce. So, you know, there was no other way that I had to do this. I just think that for people that find it offensive, they don't know the right history, mm-hmm. and, like, they should be asking different questions. Like, you know, if, for example, I was to create, or someone else was to create a, a corn masa or some sort of, like, um, indigenous type of food, and depending on where that person is from, I think it's inappropriate to use the image of, of you know, of someone's grandparent or someone, some other culture that's not theirs. Like, sure, you can create this, you can do this and sell it, but, you know, why do you need to choose the face of someone else? Right. Well, and I'm thinking that this stands in stark contrast to the legacy of Aunt Jemima mm-hmm. and Uncle Ben's and all of these, you know, old-timey Southern mammy characters that were created by white people to sell their brand of syrup or rice. Mm -hmm. And this feels like it is, I mean, it is authentically you because that's literally your face. (laughs) Also, you've got like a million-dollar smile, so you should put that on all of your branding. So as you mentioned, it's World Pride, 50th anniversary of Stonewall. Um, As people are out uh, celebrating, marching in the American Express-sponsored parade, whatever, what are some things that you want them to keep in mind? What's one thing that you want them to keep in mind? This is World Pride, but it should be World Pride. If it's World Pride, it should be for everybody. Everyone should be have a piece of the pie, and mm-hmm. the pie, we talk about money, and piece of that to do what we need to do in, in, in order to empower our communities at large. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden this World Pride came out, and all of a sudden everybody's got all this money, and next thing you know, you got these big productions going on. Mm-hmm. Although I'm doing something that weekend, that weekend as well. Unfortunately, I couldn't get a, a viable space in Brooklyn. I already had locked into Manhattan already, but um, you know, I'm doing it on uh, uh, June 29th, 2019, at the Taylor House. 
that's on 35th and 8th Avenue. Everyone that's, that's, that's that has been doing something in the community, if it's supposed to be 50 years of pride, they should have reached out to more people than mm-hmm. they did, mm-hmm. you know, and not just have a select group they're dealing with and then, you know, you tell about $125 for an event. Sure. That's like, okay, that's interesting. Who's going to pay 125 an event that's brown and black, brown, uh, brown, uh, black and brown, and that's going to get, that money is going to go back to that community to, to, to sure. do something for them. Yep. Andre? Um, where's my invitation for the food parties? You know? Mm. <laughs> yes. Yes. Very true, right? Yeah. I mean, like, I'm always curious, like, how people are invited to things. And I consider myself pretty visible mm-hmm. in the community, within the food community and the uh, LGBTQA community as well. So, you know, I'm just like curious how the chain of command works or, you know, the same sort of like, where's the outreach? And maybe I don't want to speak for you as well, but I feel like we're oftentimes blaming ourselves. Like we didn't do enough, but I think we do as much or if not more. Yeah. And... You know, I'm like, what's up with that? You know, where's our, where's our? And then I call, I mean, this call of action, you know, should be put out there also. You know, we should be support each other when it comes to anything that comes out. You know, black and brown people need to know mm-hmm. that we're out there and we need to be get support in order for it to be to be more visible in other people's eyes. You know, and it, I mean, it's it's not that blinded, just that they don't want to see us if they don't if they have no noise coming from the community to say that you know you need to reach out to us too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you have this party coming up on June 29th at the Taylor House. Right. And plug your hot sauce. Where can people buy it? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I have a stockist on my website, which is uh, shaquandawillfeedyou.com. You can also just Google drag queen hot sauce or Shaquanda hot sauce and it'll pop up. Uh, you can check me out on Hot Ones this season on YouTube. And if you're interested in having a taste, uh, Without purchasing the bottle first, you can always go to Leila Alimentari in Williamsburg or the Fat Radish in downtown Manhattan. All right. James, Andre, thank you so much for joining. Thank Thank you. And that's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to give your pocket change to a struggling Ernest Hemingway. Or you could review 112BK on iTunes and please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 